problem with the word epidemic is that it seems to be serving the goals of the autism community at the same time that it sends all that attention in the wrong direction. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today I'm speaking with journalist and author Steve Silberman about autism. Well, welcome to the show, Steve. I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you today. Autism is a difficult topic for most people, and we could all use a better understanding of it. Your new book, which came out last week, I understand, is called Neurotribes, and you really delve into the history of autism, and, and you challenge a lot of assumptions that, that people hold. So I can't wait to discuss it with you. Thanks. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, as a science journalist myself, I would read over and over again, even in pieces by, uh, you know, my friends or people who I deeply respect, you know, referring to the uh, growth in the number of diagnoses in recent decades. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. I'm like, really? You know, why Why is it such a mystery? Like, can't somebody do some reporting, you know? But the thing is that once, once I figured out, uh, or rather once I started the project, I figured out that um, – uh, why, <laughs> you know, why everyone was calling it a mystery, because it turned out that uh, some of the essential information that helps explain why things are like the way they are now in autism had been uh, sort of deliberately buried over the years, and um, that was really a revelation to me, and so what I thought would take me uh, about a year or a year and a half to write, and, you know, that's what my publisher thought it would take, um, took me five years. And it was easily the hardest thing I've ever done in my life by far. The amount of work you put into it is reflected in your book, which is very comprehensive and, and well done. Um, I, but I want to go back to what you were saying about the mystery. I think a big part of the fear, um, especially in parents, is the mystery, and and I want to ask you what you meant by um, intentionally buried, because to my understanding, we don't know what causes it, and we certainly don't fully understand it. My point was that the mystery is used, the word mystery is used to describe the reason for the rise in diagnoses, and I completely understand why parents are uh, scared, skeptical, frightened, confused, because you know, basically what happened was that the diagnosis was completely rewritten in the in the late 80s and early 90s in order to correct for uh, some long-standing errors in the scope of the diagnosis that had been put there or originated with the father of the diagnosis, Leo Connor, uh, the man who claimed to discover autism in 1943 in uh, Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Hospital. The standard timeline of autism history is this. Uh, this child psychiatrist named Leo Connor published a landmark paper in 1943 uh, describing 11 children who seemed to exist in kind of private worlds and uh, exhibited uh, sort of repetitive behavior and seemed to be not interested in people at all, even their own parents. And Connor wrote some very uh, excellent descriptions of the behavior of these children. Um, 
However, it turns out that uh, he was not the first person to notice this cluster of behavior. And in fact, uh, one of the cruelest myths out there, uh, and many, many people believe it, that somehow autism is a product of the modern world. And, you know, often when I, when I meet parents and tell them that I have just written a history of autism, like they'll lean close to me and say, it's the pesticides, isn't it? Or it's the GMOs or it's the, uh, you know, hormone mimicking plastics or it's the something. Well, it turns out that there are absolutely superb descriptions of autism, including what many parents now call regressive autism, uh, from the 19th century. So the notion that autism is a, is, you know, kind of the unique disorder of our uniquely disordered world is uh, wrong. Uh, and it's not only a misconception, but it's a misconception that does a very cool thing to uh, autistic people in the past, which is to render them invisible to history. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I, I uh, trace some of those early cases, but then I go very in-depth into uh, Hans Asperger's work in Vienna in the 1930s. Um, Hans Asperger was really the discoverer of autism, and furthermore, he discovered what we now call the autism spectrum. And so Asperger had an extremely prescient view that very much matches the modern view of what autism is. And Asperger himself had been a uh, rather odd child. So um, Asperger, uh, you know, could relate to the kids that he was seeing, and as could several other people in this clinic, including his chief diagnostician, George Frankel. So that was all going on in Vienna. But what else was going on in Vienna in the late 1930s? And that's what, you know, that question is what my book explores for the first time in depth, really, of any book. And what happened is the Nazis marched into Austria in 1938 to annex Austria for the fatherland. And um, they specifically took over the University of Vienna, and all of Asperger's um, supervisors were, you know, either Nazis themselves or replaced with Nazis. But Asperger stayed in part because he wanted to protect his children from the increasing danger of the fact that the Nazis launched a secret extermination program against disabled children. So this was hard. You know, I was weeping, literally, when I was writing these parts of the book. Um, It's very heavy. Um, Not easy, you know, particularly for parents to read, I have to say, uh, that, that section of the book. But, you know, it's the truth, and it needed to be exposed. So... So that happened. So how does Leo Connor then claim to discover autism? Connor hires a guy who can make sense of Connor's first autistic patient, a guy named Donald Triplett or Donald P's behavior. Uh, Connor, in fact, sends his first three autistic patients to this guy for evaluation because he doesn't quite know what to make of uh, these children's behavior. He, he thinks they might have schizophrenia, etc. But he sends them to this guy, and this guy knows why um, these children are behaving this way because he's had 11 years of examining children like this, and in fact, uh, he's seen, you know, perhaps uh, more than a hundred children like this before that. Where did he see them? 
in Asperger's Clinic. That guy was George Frankel, uh, the guy that Connor hired to run this place called the Children's Study Home was George Frankel, Asperger's chief diagnostician. And so my book is the first time that this crucial connection between Asperger's work and Connor's work has ever been revealed. Well, so what, you know, one might say. It's like, don't priority disputes happen in science all the time? Well, it turns out there's much more at stake in this case. Because while Asperger and Frankel had developed a notion of autism that was a very, very broad spectrum and was, uh, you know, lasted from birth to death, Connor's model of autism was much more narrow and restrictive and exclusive. What happened was in the late 70s and early 80s, a cognitive psychologist in Britain named Lorna Wing decided to see if Connor's model was accurate. So Lorna goes out into the suburb of uh, London. What does she see? All these autistic kids, kids with tons of autistic traits. Um, some of them matched Connor's descriptions perfectly. Some of them did not. Whereas Connor often wrote about kids who really struggled with language. Um, she saw kids who were extremely chatty, but um, they weren't really sensitive to the social signals of the people around them. Um, so there were, what she saw was that uh, a bunch of children that Connor's model did not account for who had, you know, either some or all or uh, parts of Connor's, um, you know, syndrome as he described it. And she had no idea what to make of this data at first. It was like, how could no one have seen these children before? But then she came across a reference to Asperger's paper in a paper written by a Dutch uh, psychologist. And she was like, Asperger, what's this? And uh, so she had her husband, John, who spoke German, translate the paper for her. She realized that Asperger had been right. And so she went behind the scenes to the subcommittee that was drawing up the new criteria for autism. And she had the criteria changed in the late 80s and early 90s. She introduced the concept of Asperger syndrome, which, of course, Asperger, you know, Asperger did not just discover Asperger syndrome. He discovered the autism spectrum. But uh, all of these changes that she made replaced Connor's narrow model with Asperger's spectrum model. And suddenly, the number of diagnoses started to soar, just as Lorna hoped it would. They would. Because um, she knew that these families were struggling without any help. Since the time of Asperger and Connor, um, and since the time that autism was named as a condition or disorder, could you could you give us an idea of how attitudes have changed since then? Yeah. Well, the biggest change in autism, I would say, uh, since the late 1980s, is that people have heard of it. People don't realize how obscure autism was before the late 1980s. Uh, autism, and particularly autistic adults, were completely off everyone's radar, uh, except for you know a very small group of people in the uh, autism parenting community um, until the late 80s. Well, what happened in the late 80s? Rain Man suddenly. There's a, you know, an Oscar, multiple Oscar winning film starring a very popular actor at the height of his career, Dustin Hoffman, playing this 
fabulously detailed and you know wonderful and beguiling autistic adult with special talents and charming quirks and eccentricities. And what parents who were around at the time told me was that Rain Man did more to spread awareness of autism among parents, among clinicians, among autistic people themselves than anything had done before in, in decades. That they had been trying, the parents who were real activists in the autism community, that they had been trying for years to get media coverage and there was just no interest because it was considered to be so rare. And suddenly after uh, Rain Man, um, there were, you know, thousands of articles. It was like every newspaper and radio station in the country did a story on autism. And so uh, w the thing that I heard the most, actually, it's kind of cute, albeit sad. The thing that I heard the most from parents was that they would often have to, exp before Rain Man, they would often have to explain uh, to their neighbors that, no, 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 no I didn't say my uh, son is artistic. I said he's autistic. You know, and so after Rain Man, and I mean literally a week after, like a week after, you know, everyone rushed off to see it and it got great reviews mostly, um, suddenly everyone had heard of autism. So that's a, that's a huge thing, you know, and I have to say, like, people who say, like, why did I never hear of autism? Well, uh, there's another reason, too. Uh, as I as I describe in my book, <clears throat> there was tremendous confusion in the 1950s and 60s about labels. Uh, Leo Connor called it early infantile autism, but after he published his paper, he got a very angry uh, letter from a prominent psychiatrist named Louise Despair, which is a great name for a psychiatrist, um, <laughs> saying like, "What are you saying? This is a new condition." You know, I, me and my colleagues and I have been describing it for years. And in fact, they had been, but they've been calling it something else. They've been calling it childhood schizophrenia. And lo and behold, in the 1950s and 60s, there was an epidemic of childhood schizophrenia that was like an eerie foreshadowing of the quote-unquote epidemic of autism that allegedly began in the uh, early 90s. How do you feel about that phrase? Which phrase? Epidemic of autism. Oh, epidemic of autism. Um, it's a phrase that is A, historically inaccurate, but B, tremendously damaging for a number of reasons. Um, the reason why it's been embraced by organizations like Autism Speaks, who have used the word epidemic over and over and over and over and over, is that um, it attracts attention. But here's the problem. The appropriate response is for an epidemic is not necessarily the appropriate response for a condition that has always been with us but mm -hmm. has been traditionally undiagnosed. If there's an epidemic of something, then it didn't exist before, and what you should do is focus your entire efforts on finding what new factor there is in the environment uh, that is causing this epidemic. And in fact, there's a phrase that is repeated constantly in the uh, anti-vaccine community. There's no such thing as a genetic epidemic. Well, they're so right. There isn't. Um, however, it turns out that autism is not an epidemic. And in fact, what happened with the spike in diagnoses is exactly what Lorna Wing and her colleagues in London hoped would happen because they knew that families were struggling to get by 
without adequate services and support for the kids. And so um, the problem with the word epidemic is that it seems to be serving the goals of the autism community at the same time that it sends all that attention uh, in the wrong direction. And so we have invested literally millions of dollars, um, in fact, I, I believe it's close to a billion in the last 10 years, quote, unquote, combating autism and fighting the autism epidemic. And, you know, we're investing in huge genome scanning projects to find candidate genes. Well, we found more than, uh, more than 600, in fact, I believe it's nearly 1,000 genes that uh, may play a role in autism. But it, turn, it turns out that each autistic person is genetically quite unique. So, um, you know, there are some uh, combinations of genes that are more common, but, you know, it's a huge complex thing. Okay, is it just genetic? No, it isn't, because you can have one twin that is autistic and another that isn't. So there's some kind of epigenetic or environmental thing going on, and, you know, uh, media coverage often focuses on that. Something more is going on, you know, but yet they don't deal with the, you know, the radical change in the diagnosis, uh, which my book, you know, it's the subject of my book. So I think as long as we're in the what causes autism uh, mindset, that we're not going to be in the let's help people with yeah. autism and their yeah. families mindset. Yeah, that's fascinating that that we don't switch mindsets until we get a clear answer. It's interesting about our nature. Yeah, and like, you know, think about it. It's like, what if we said gay marriage? Like, we can't talk about gay marriage yet. We haven't figured out the genetics of homosexuality. Right. Can you imagine if we'd put off, you know, giving people, you know, giving people equal rights that their neighbors already take for granted until we figure out what causes homosexuality? I mean, not altogether apt, but apt in some way. So anyway, um, the problem is that we're not investing in improving the lives of the autistic people who are already here. Yeah. You know? Let me ask you, um, I, I do want to talk about, about the ways we could improve those lives, but um, I, I thought when you originally had um, voiced a concern about the phrasing epidemic, I thought you were going to raise an, a problem with the negative connotations of that word. And I just wonder, after all this time that you've you've spent with autistic people and important people in their lives, how you've come to see it. Do you see it as a disorder or a syndrome or a personality extreme? Well, that's what's so, you know, that's what's so interesting about autism is that it can be seen in so many different ways. I personally avoid using the word disorder in my book, um, although it does appear, you know, often when other people are speaking. Um, I avoid using the word disorder because I don't claim to know what the proper order of the universe should be. Uh, it's sort of a large word. It says that, it, you know, that autism is somehow like an error of nature, you know, and I don't uh, necessarily buy into that. Um, is it a personality type? Um, sure, it definitely is. And in fact, one of the most subversive ideas embedded in Lorna Wing's concept of the spectrum is that the spectrum shades imperceptibly into eccentric normality, as she said to me directly. Um, so what that means is that um, there's no bright line between autism and non-autism. Um, and she also said that virtually every trait 
that uh, describes Asperger's syndrome can be fu- can be found in people who, who would not be diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. So where do we draw the line? Well, I say we draw the line where people need help. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people come to me and they say, well, wasn't Steve Jobs autistic or isn't Mark Zuckerberg autistic? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. I, I met Steve Jobs. Um, I don't think he was autistic myself. He, he might have had autistic traits. Yes, I've seen videos of Mark Zuckerberg acting a little awkward, but um, <laughs> unless unless he's struggling in ways that the world is profoundly unaware of, he's doing very well for himself. Right. You know, so so I don't. I would not say that what Mark Zuckerberg desperately needs is a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. You know, I think people should decide for themselves whether or not they they need a diagnosis. And um, I just gave a a sort of a publication party for the book at the local bookstore here in San Francisco here um, last week. And one of the first questions I was asked was, um, well, what do you think about these people who, you know, don't get diagnosed until middle age? And I said, well, there are people who, here, you know, who could answer that question from personal experience. I'm, you know, I'm just a, a boring neurotypical, as they say. I'm not autistic. But, you know, this wonderful autistic woman uh, stood up and she said, um, I had been struggling my whole life. For me, uh, getting a diagnosis was like finding the Rosetta Stone to myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't improve on that. You know, I mean... Uh, I am gay, and if I didn't know, you know, that I, if I hadn't figured out that I was gay in about sixth grade, you know, if I'd sort of gone through college, like, wondering, like, wait, why am I sort of looking at the wrong people here, <laughs> you know? Um, being, you know, getting a diagnosis of homosexuality would have been like finding, you know, the Rosetta Stone to myself. So I've never met anyone who had an official diagnosis who I thought was misdiagnosed. Oh, interesting. Uh, I have met a couple of self-diagnosed people. I thought, well, really, you know, but it's it's not my business in a sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to just follow up on something you said of situations or fields where autistic people might be thriving, especially in certain jobs, and whether you think that technology and the internet is kind of an example of the world making room for autistic people, even if it's not on purpose. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I'll just, instead of speaking in broad theoretical terms, I'll just speak in personal terms. I have some autistic friends who, if you meet them, you know, in a room, like say where there are other people, you think, oh my God, this person is so uncomfortable. You know, they look very unhappy. Uh, they, they're not talking, you know, they're not looking into the eyes of the people around them. Uh, you know, they, they just look like they can't wait to get out of there, you know. And yet, if you, and this is even like if I'm talking to them in a cafe, say, but if you put, if you put those same people behind a keyboard, they rock the house. They're hilarious. They're funny. They're hip. They, you know, they have broad cultural references. Um, and the same is true, by the way, for autistic people I know who can't talk, you know. And and I know um, someone, you know, I don't want to out anybody, but I know someone who, if you if you heard him on the phone, you know, you would think, oh, this person is probably seriously intellectually disabled. You know, they they do not sound like you know they can they're really eloquent. Yeah. Um, you put that guy behind a keyboard. And he is a beautiful, beautiful writer. 
And so what technology has done is not only allowed people who struggle with spoken language and real-time social interactions to express themselves, but they're able to connect with each other. I want to ask you what you think the future will hold for autism and, and what are some of the ways that, that we could uh, make more room for autistic people? Well, um, here's what I would say is one suggestion. And, you know, there could be, we could talk for another hour about it. But yeah. um, one thing is that the notion that autism is an epidemic and a unique product of modern times has encouraged us to completely ignore the fate of autistic people once they are no longer cute children, uh, you know, in school. And so what happens is uh, autistic children, quote, unquote, age out of services. They leave school, whether they, you know, had to go to a special school or they were mainstreamed or whatever, but they leave school. Are, you know, there are no transitional programs in many places to train them for the job market if they're able to work. Um, if they're not able to work, they're, you know, the, the housing options are extremely limited and extremely um, upsetting to both parents and autistic people themselves. And yet, you know, it's like our investment as a society in research to improve the lives of autistic adults is shamefully limited. Mm -hmm. um, Autism Speaks, the largest private fundraising organization in America, invests less than 2% of its research funding in research on improving the lives of autistic adults. Um, the National Institutes of Health says that less than 2% of our investment in research is focused on adults. Even worse than that, a report just came out in June from the Government Accountability Office that said that the uh, level of research on adults has fallen in recent years. So all this talk about autism and the autism epidemic and autism awareness and, you know, it's time to become aware of the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who don't even have diagnoses, who don't even know why they've been struggling their whole lives. And if they have diagnoses, they and their families are left to twist in the wind without help. And yet, you know, we say that we're dealing seriously as a society by sending $50 million to the Beijing Genomics Institute to dig up more candidate genes from the human genome. So what I'm hoping my book does is show that autistic people have always been here, that we have never taken care of them adequately, that we are not taking care of them adequately, no matter how much we talk about autism awareness or invest in genome studies or, or environmental risk factor studies, and that we really need to have a national soul-searching period where we say, are we really helping families of people with autism and people with autism themselves, or are we kidding ourselves and saying that we are when we're not? I, you know, before I let you go, I just want to give you a chance to, to say one last thing about um, about your book or, or the topic. I mean, I would say that uh, I wrote my book not just for people who read autism books uh, every year. Um, I would say that there are a lot of people out there who are smart, who are interested in science, who have heard a lot of conflicting, confusing statements about autism in the media. And if you want to know what really has been going on with autism, 
without having to be already familiar with the subject and or have a kid yourself or you know et cetera, I would say that um you know you should check out my book I mean it's a long read, but I tried to make it you know kind of a page turner as much as I could, and I'm really thankful that thus far I mean the reviews have been a dream, and uh it, it's because people who are not necessarily already in the autism community uh, are finding it interesting. And we have a long way to go before we're treating autistic people and their families right. And uh, I hope my book pushes us half an inch in the right direction. Would you like to say a couple words about your late friend, Oliver Sacks, the famous neurologist, passed away yesterday? Sure. Um, Oliver Sacks was uh, not only one of the most brilliant uh, science writers uh, around. Uh, he was also an extremely astute clinical observer, and he was also my friend. I absolutely adored Oliver. And um, the last contact that I had with him was when he sent me a foreword for my book. I was uh, completely shocked that he found the time to do it. He, uh, I'm told he, was, he literally got out of bed uh, where he was dying of cancer to write the forward to the book. So needless to say, I'm, I was deeply touched and honored. But to tell you the truth, um, I'm still really sad today because knowing that Oliver Sacks is dead, it's as if a mountain has vanished uh, in our midst. He had one of the greatest minds I've ever come across. Uh, he was funny. He was kind. He was sweet. He was bizarre. He was, um, you know, uh, he was just hilarious and, and wonderful and insightful and brilliant. And boy, am I ever going to miss him. Many people will. It will be a big loss to the community. Um, thank you, Steve. This has been fascinating, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was wonderful. Once again, that was Steve Silberman, and his book is called Neurotribes. For more from us, tune in next week or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.